Well, welcome everybody. It's good. It's uh, great to see you this weekend. Everybody at Montrose, thanks for joining us as well. It's great to be together as a, as a church family and glad that we can all connect. Uh, we've been in a series these last few weeks called The Unconventional Influencer, and we've been talking about this guy, uh, John the Baptist, and talking about how in his day, uh, he had a massive platform, a massive brand, major influencer, and he chose to be faceless instead of famous. He stepped back and he pushed Jesus to the forefront and he would look at the people in his day and if he was here today, he would look at us and say, who you need to know is Jesus. Uh, everybody has a, a, a need for a savior, for a leader, for a deliverer, what he called a Messiah. And everybody has that place in, in their heart. Uh, you don't belong in that place. I don't belong in that place. John the Baptist doesn't belong in that place. But the one true Messiah, Jesus Christ, does. And so in the day, uh, he wanted people to know that. And even today, I'm sure that he would want you to know that as well. And so we've looked at his life the last few weeks. And, uh, and we've been having that conversation. And those conversations are online and on the podcast. And they're in the app. And this weekend, I want to finish up this series by kind of talking about the crescendo of it all, and that is Jesus showing up on the scene and Jesus actually being baptized by John the Baptist. And this is kind of what all this has been building toward is Jesus finally looking and announcing, so to say, publicly that that's the guy, the one who's gonna be greater, greater, so much better than me, the guy you're actually looking for, here he is. And Jesus uh, comes to John and is baptized by John. And we're gonna look at that and see how that kind of plays out this weekend. So I wanna walk you through this this weekend. And we're gonna talk about why Jesus was baptized because that's a really curious thing to dig into. Uh, we're gonna talk about why it matters to me why is that more than just like a historical fact that I know? Why would it, how would it show up in my life, real time, real life, right now? And then we're gonna talk about what am I supposed to do with it? Because Jesus' baptism uh, would have like direct uh, impact on us like today, and it's something that we should kind of act on, so to say, right? So uh, we're gonna jump into our story here. Uh, last weekend, I took you through Luke chapter three, and we're gonna kind of pick it up there. So John the Baptist is at the peak of his influence. He's at the peak of his, his fame and his brand and all that's kind of maxing out right now. So much so that last weekend we saw that Luke chapter three happened, verse 15. People were coming in expectation and they were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ or he might be the Messiah. Verse 16, John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John drawing a crowd. John has a major, major platform. So much so that people are looking at him and they're like, are you like the Messiah? Like, should we worship you? Should we follow you? What should we do with you? John's like, nope, there's a Messiah seat. I don't belong in it. And so I'm not the Messiah, but he's coming. He's coming. He's coming so much greater than I am. And he's on his way. And this weekend, this is where John says, there he is. There's the, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we're gonna jump on kind of this, this uh, conversation in Matthew. So Matthew chapter three, it's page 784 in the Bibles that are in the chairs there, if you wanna use that. But we'll kind of pick it up there. So in that context, Jesus walks up and it plays out like this, verse 13 of Matthew chapter three. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, but John tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said, so why are you coming to me? But Jesus said it it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him and after his baptism, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And the voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And so that whole scene kind of plays out. And it's a historical scene, right? Like that's what happened. And it's an important piece of like the Bible narrative. So it needs to fit in there. But the thing that I would really, when I read that, and I try to understand that the question that would jump to my mind is like, why did Jesus have to be baptized? Like, what, what was the deal with that, right? So John is doing a baptism that he calls a baptism of repentance. And this is tied to ancient Judaism where people are coming to John and they're Jewish and they're saying, I'm not following God or what the Bible calls the law or what we, we could call the rules. Like I'm not following the religion. I've kind of fallen away. I don't care about it anymore, but I wanna get back right with God and the rules are the way that I'm supposed to do that. So I repent or turn from my rebellion against God and that baptism signified that. So it was a baptism of repentance back to the law or it was a baptism of conversion. So I'm not Jewish and I want to become Jewish and you would, be, you would repent, you would baptize, you would convert to Judaism, right? So that's what John is doing in the wilderness. So when Jesus walks in and Jesus is like, I wanna be baptized, the question would be like, why? Because you're, you're Jewish and you've never sinned. So what's the point of this baptism, right? Uh, why, why did Jesus need to be baptized? In fact, it's fascinating when, when he goes up to John, that's exactly what John's thinking. So John's tried to talk him out of it. And he's like, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. You're the sinless one. You're the lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. So why are you coming to me? I baptize people who have sinned and are repenting and wanna go back and follow the law. Or I baptize people who are converting uh, you check both those boxes, what exactly do you need to be baptized for? So John had that question, and it's a fair one, and it's a question that we should wrestle with a little bit too. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? So this is what I put out in front of you. I would say that there's two main reasons that Jesus needed to be baptized, right? And the first one is this really, really big reason that's very, very important And then the second one is kind of very personal. It's a reason that would show up in our lives in in a real way, okay? So what are these these two main reasons that that Jesus needed to be baptized? Two things happened at his baptism. Here's the first one. The first thing that happened at Jesus' baptism 
is that the Trinity affirmed the deity of Jesus, right? So this is a big deal. So if you're familiar with the Trinity, the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So it's the, the Godhead. And if you grew up in church, that's more familiar to you than if you didn't grow up in church. So I don't want us to get lost in the weeds, but it's an important little stop, stop there. So you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And at Jesus' baptism, you have all three of those individuals showing up at once on planet Earth, right? And you see the Trinity kind of play out. So Jesus comes up out of the water from his baptisms. The heavens were open, and you saw the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and settling on Jesus. And a voice from heaven, this is the Father, saying, this is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. So you have the Father saying, this is my Son whom I really pleased with. You have the Spirit who's confirming Jesus. He lands on him in the form of a dove. And then you have the Son who's being baptized. Now, why is that a big deal? That's a really big deal because in the day, like today, there was confusion about who God was. And we saw it just last weekend where, where the people were like, John, are you the Christ? Like all that Old Testament prophecy stuff, was that about you or what should we do with that? And even today, we, we would have that question, a lot of us, like there's so many gods and this guy says he is and Buddha and Muhammad and this guy and all the Hindu gods and this and that and the other thing. And there was confusion about it. And when we think of who is the promised Messiah, who fulfills all the Old Testament prophecy, the Jews would have certainly been asking that question. Jesus' baptism confirms that Jesus is the one true God or Christ. The Father said it, the Spirit confirmed it, and Jesus is there being called the Son of God. And so Jesus is not a prophet. He's not just a great teacher. Uh, he's not an ancient version of Mother Teresa. Uh, he's not in the running with a bunch of other people who say that they're God. He alone is God. And the Trinity affirms that or confirms that at his baptism. It's a big deal, right? That that all happened and it played out in that setting. So that's one of the major things that happened at Jesus' baptism. Now here's the other big thing that happened at his baptism, and this is the one that I actually wanna spend our weekend talking about. The other major thing that happened at Jesus' baptism is the substitution of Jesus begins. The substitution of Jesus begins, right? Now, all of the gospel, all of Christianity, all of the message of Jesus is all centered around this idea that Jesus is our substitute. So I am the one who has rebelled against God. I am the one that the Bible will call a sinner. The Bible says all human beings have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin is anything that I do that is not in line with God's heart. My selfishness, my lying, my lust, on and on and on and on, right? So the Bible says that every human being has sinned like that, and we've fallen short of God's glory. God's standard is not goodness. His standard is perfection. And my sin makes me imperfect. God is sinless. 
I am sinful. The whole story of Jesus is built around this idea of substitution, that my sin has earned me something. So the Bible says it this way. The Bible says the wages of sin is spiritual death. The wages of sin is death, right? Wages is what I get or what I earn for what I've done. If I go work an hour, I get a wage for that hour. If I'm a sinner, I earn spiritual death for what I've done. So I am responsible for my sin and every human being is responsible for that. The gospel would say this. The gospel would look at you and say that is 100% true of you, but there's good news. The good news is that you deserve spiritual death, but Jesus, who never sinned, paid for your sins, and he died in your place. And that plays out on the cross when Jesus is crucified. The Bible says he died once for all. So Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because we owe a debt that we can't pay. He was our substitute. Now that substitutionary process begins, so to say, at Jesus's baptism. When he stepped in that Jordan River to be baptized, that was the first step to, the, to Calvary. It's the first step to the cross. Uh, J.D. Greer is one of my favorite authors. Um, he, would, he would say it this way. Uh, he would, um, actually before I get there, let me get there. Jesus, when he answered John, he's talking about this. So when Jesus answered John, like, I don't want to baptize you, you should baptize me. Jesus says this in Matthew 3.15, but Jesus said, it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. And that's that substitutionary process. God would require that. And it begins at baptism and then it goes to the cross. Now, J.D. Greer says it this way. Jesus at his baptism was beginning his ministry of substitution. When Jesus stepped into the water to repent of sin, he was not repenting for his sin, but for ours. He was taking our place, right? Now, the Apostle Paul, he builds on this idea and he says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter five. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus is taking our place. God made Jesus to be sin, even though he had never sinned, completely innocent. He made him to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, or we might become right with God. The J.D. Greer in his book explained it this way. I thought he used a, a great word picture, showed it this way. He said, think of it this way. He said, think of that crowd at the Jordan River that day and that everybody in that crowd is there to be baptized for the repentance of sin. They're curious about that. And Jesus then walks into that crowd, goes to John and says, you should baptize me. J.D. Greer uses this picture. He says, think of it this way. Think of everybody in that crowd and think of yourself in that crowd and everybody, including yourself in that crowd, has a name tag on that identifies who you are spiritually. And their name tag and your name tag would read sinner, 
that's who I am. I've rebelled against God. I've lied, I've stolen, I've cheated, I've had lustful thoughts, I've been selfish, I've been greedy. We're all sinners. So everybody in that crowd, and you're in it, you have a name tag on that says sinner. Into that crowd walks a sinless Jesus. Jesus is in perfect relationship with God because God's perfect and his son Jesus is perfect. My relationship with God is broken because God's perfect and I'm a sinner, I'm imperfect. So the sinless Jesus walks through that crowd and he's on his way to be baptized in the Jordan River. JD uses this picture. He says, imagine that Jesus comes up to you and says, listen, I would like to do an exchange with you. I would like to peel off your name tag that says sinner, and I would like to replace it with my name tag that says righteous. I'm perfect and in perfect relationship with God. You're imperfect and your relationship with God is broken. And you're titled that or labeled that or identified as a sinner in that way. But I would like to trade with you. And I would like to take off your name tag and I would like you to put on my name tag so that you are righteous. And then I want to put your sinner name tag and affix it to me. And when Jesus walked into that water, so to say, he was covered with the name tags of sinners. He didn't go to be baptized for his sin, he's righteous. He went to be baptized for our sin. And when he did that, he started the process that was completed at the cross. And when he died on the cross for our sin, he paid the price for our sin. And only he could do that because he was sinless. And that journey... That process started at his baptism. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. But he made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We traded name tags with Jesus when we accept the forgiveness of our sin. Now that's a big deal. That's a super big deal. And and something I think we should talk about for a second. When we talk about sin, and we talk about this idea of Jesus being our substitute, being willing to trade name tags with us, on the surface, I think most people don't download that as deeply as we should, and I'll throw myself in that category. I think as human beings, we don't think about sin for the destructive power that it has in our life, and we certainly don't think about it the way that God would think about it. Now, most of the time when we think about sin or talk about sin, we'll either laugh about sin a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, man, I can't believe I did that. Like, we'll laugh about sin a little bit. Ooh, my freshman year of college, whoa. Right, we'll kind of laugh about it. Or we'll downplay it. Listen, it's like, come on, man. It's like that. everybody's a little greedy, Everybody's selfish. We'll downplay it, right? Or we'll somehow excuse it with our humanity. 
Well, is it, I'm not perfect. I'm only human, right? And I do that too. I do all of that too. I think that's our way of dealing with sin. Now, when we do that, this is what happens. When we think about sin that way and we kind of address it in our life that way and we even talk about it that way, what we're doing is we're minimalizing what sin is to God. Because if sin is funny or sin is just like, yeah, I gotta stop it, or sin is simply my humanity, isn't, isn't that a little shallow when God sees it as a life and death situation? So the way I think of it is like, ah, sin. The way that God thinks of it is, I'm going to give my only son to be crucified for you. He's gonna walk through the crowd, he's gonna swap name tags with you, he's gonna be baptized when he doesn't need to be baptized, and that process is gonna end on the cross. Yeah, whoa, man, you know, college. Yeah, well, you know my son, so. So we probably don't think about sin at the depth that we need to think about sin. And we certainly don't think about it at the depth that our heavenly father would think about sin, right? Now, if you wanna think about sin, if you wanted a physical representation of how your sin looks to God, because we don't tend to view sin correctly, but if I was trying to get my head around God's kind of mind and God's heart, and I wanted a physical representation of how my sin looks to God, the physical representation of how sin looks to God that I would encourage you to put in your mind is Jesus on the cross. So Jesus went to the cross. The Bible says that the justice of God was poured out on Jesus. So everything that happened to Jesus on the cross and to the cross was supposed to happen to you and I. But Jesus took our place. He was our substitute. And if you look at what happened to Jesus' body, you'll start to get your head around what happens to our soul because of sin. What sin does, sin is not funny or just blow it off. It's not, Sin destroys us, beats us, breaks us, causes us to suffer, mocks us, wreaks untold pain and destruction in our lives, and eventually will suffocate us as it bleeds the life out of our soul and leaves us spiritually dead. The wages of sin is death. The end result of the cross was Jesus' death. So when God looks at sin, he's seeing that play out. He's seeing broken, beaten, destroyed, humiliated, overwhelmed, isolated, suffocating sin that chokes the life out of our souls and only leads to death. And it's all earned. We 
should be on the cross. We have earned for ourselves the cross. But I'm a good person. I believe you. But God's standard is perfection, and you're not that. We should be the ones who suffered, should be the ones who the wrath of God or the justice of God was poured out on. And the message and the power and the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus took our place. Guys, this is where where the gospel or the message of Jesus just becomes mind-boggling, mind-boggling. It's unlike any other message on planet Earth. Every other spiritual message on planet Earth or every other life message, even like a you-improve-yourself self-improvement message, every other spiritual message, every other religious message, every other life message on planet Earth starts this way. You are broken, you are bloody, you are beat up, you are suffocating, you are on some cross somewhere that you don't want to be on. And every other religion and every other spiritual message and every life improvement message would say this, since you're on that cross, what you should do is get yourself off of it. If you could enlighten yourself, if you could understand the deeper truths, if you could get inside of your own mind and your own heart enough, if you could believe in yourself, if you could find yourself, if you could develop and believe and follow your own truth, if you could be religious enough, if you could keep enough rules and be faithful enough or give enough money and sow your seed of faith and all of this, if you would do these things or think these ways or improve yourself in this ways or interact with yourself in this way, you would get out of the position that you've placed yourself in. And you would be the better or the right or the complete version of you because you're stuck and these are paths that allow you to get yourself unstuck. Now here's the Achilles heel of every one of these things. Every religion, every form of spirituality, every bit of self-help. Here's the Achilles heel. How do you know you achieved it? I need to be the best version of me. Well, how do you know you're the best version of you? Well, I'm becoming that, but like, how do you arrive? I need to be, I need to be enlightened with all these. Well, when are you enlightened enough? Well, when I'm at peace, well, then why do you have to keep meditating? I mean, how do you, I, I need to be devoted and devout. Well, how are you devoted or devout enough? Did you keep enough rules? Did you keep the right rules? Are you still keeping the rules that you said you would keep before? How do you win? How do you come to peace? How do you come to security? How do you know that you're done? And every life philosophy and every spiritual philosophy and every religious philosophy outside the person of Jesus Christ. By the way, this same stuff is often wrapped up in Christianity. Yeah, Jesus kind of gets you out of hell, but you keep yourself out of it. You don't smoke, drink, chew, date girls who do, dance, have fun, listen to secular music, good music. You don't do any of that. 
It's often wrapped up in Christianity. And it's the same philosophy as Islam, as Hinduism, as Mormonism. It's the same philosophy as life improvement, be a better version of you. It's all the same thing because the substitution of Jesus is not the focal point of all of it. It's only the message of Christ that would say, you are on that cross. It's not that you might put yourself there. You're there already. The wages of sin is death and you've all earned it already. You're on the cross and the way off of that cross is not for you to somehow improve or better yourself. The way off of that cross is for me to take your place on it. In fact, it's fascinating when Jesus was being crucified, these Jewish leaders came around who were super hyper-legalistic and these Roman guys came also and they were mocking him and they looked at him and they said, if you're the son of God, then get yourself off the cross. Prove it. If you can get yourself off, you prove it. And here's the thing, Jesus could have done it if he wanted to do it. And as they're mocking him, saying, you take yourself off, you're not the son of God, you're not the one true Messiah, that whole father, son, spirit thing did not apply to you at the baptism. Get yourself off the cross. Jesus, in essence, looked at them and he said, no. I'm not coming off the cross because if I come off this cross, you've gotta come up here. And he even cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand the substitutionary atonement that I have to take their place. Or there's no hope. And there's no forgiveness. And there's no life. Unless I do this for them. If they don't swap name tags with me, And when Jesus was baptized, that process began, so to say. And it was kind of his first physical example of looking at the people and looking at us saying, this water's for you, but I'm gonna get in it. This baptism's for you, but I'm gonna go through it. And this cross is for you, but I'm gonna get on it. Because if I don't, see, only I who know no sin can pay the price for you who are trapped in it. And if you will swap name tags with me, you take on my righteousness. And that's what allows you to be who God has called you and who God wants you to be. And this is where this shows up and what we're supposed to do with it. Jesus says, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says to him, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He's talking about that substitution. You have to come through me. I am the only way that you can get to the Father. You are imperfect. The Father is perfect. Perfection and imperfection cannot coexist. Make yourself perfect. You can't. Everybody knows that. Make yourself close to perfect. How close? Because any mark off perfect, off perfect is imperfection. It doesn't work. 
It's only if somebody who is perfect stands in my place. So I am the only way. I am the only truth. I am the only life. And if you'll swap name tags with me, the Father will look at you as he looked at me and say to you, there is my son that I'm pleased with. There is my daughter, not the sinner, not the rebellious one. There's my daughter that I'm pleased with. He looks at you as he looked at me because when I was on the cross, he looked at me the way that you are. I became sin and you became righteous if you'll swap name tags with me. And this great exchange, this substitution is the heart of the gospel, it's the heart of the message of Jesus. And it's unique. And there's nothing else like it because there's nobody else like him because he is the son of God. How do you know? Well, the father said it, the spirit confirmed it. And he who knew no sin became sin. His love for us kept him on that cross because he knew full well, if I get off this thing, you're coming up. And the Bible says, for the joy set before him, for your forgiveness, for your freedom, for your hope, for your salvation, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Not because he was masochistic, but because he was madly in love with you. And he knew there was one way, and he was it. The gospel, the gospel is not information. Jesus died for your sin, God's love. It's not information. The gospel is not theology or religion or doctrine. The gospel is the outpouring of God's love. There is one way. There's only one way to pull this off. And the good news of the gospel is that God acted on that. And when Jesus stepped into that Jordan River, he was taking the first step to that cross to be our substitute. Now, this is what I think of when I think of that. I kind of think in terms of questions, right? So here's the questions I would have. First one is, have you accepted the substitution of Jesus? And listen, if there's any other life philosophy that's governing your life, any other religion, any form of self-help, any idea that I have to live my truth, if there's any, last week we would have said if there's any other Messiah in that seat besides the one true Messiah, 
if there's any other life philosophy governing your life, what the Bible would say is all have sinned and fall short of God's perfection and the wages of that sin is death. You're already on that cross. If perfection is the path to get off of it, is anything about your religion or anything about your life philosophy going to cause you to arrive there? And how would you know? Have you accepted the substitution? Jesus just looks at you and said, if you wanna swap name tags, I'm in. Because I went to that cross, you don't have to be on it. All you have to do is accept. And I don't make you, and I won't push you, and I won't guilt trip you, I'm just telling you, it's done, finished, paid for. Have you accepted the substitution of Jesus? Now here's the second question that comes to my mind, ready? Do you live in that substitution? I know I wrestled for years and years. I would have believed that Jesus was the way, the truth, the life. I would have believed that he was the only path to heaven. I would have believed that he died for my sins. And, and I would have believed that with my heart and I would have believed that when it came to my salvation, but I didn't believe that with my life. because I believed what I would call an incomplete gospel. So I thought Jesus saved me. I didn't believe he loved me. I didn't believe that he was willing to journey with me. I was just always kind of afraid that I'd screw up enough that he'd take his salvation back. I didn't live in the gospel. Jesus was my substitute and he keeps substituting my screw ups with his grace, my rebellion with his mercy. Because a lot of us think that we're ruined. Somebody told you there was some taboo sin and you did that to taboo sin and so maybe you get to heaven but you're not real calm. You don't. A lot of you think that you're you're tainted. See, Jesus saved me out of my sin, but man, that whole like new creation, the old's gone, the new's come stuff, I don't know, my past really defines me. And a lot of us think that there's these rules to keep. I love Jesus and then I gotta keep these rules because everybody told me there was rules. I'm here to tell you there's not. There's love. And love always alters behavior. It's not that you won't change. It's that this is not a pass-fail test. It's not the way the gospel works. When I swap to name tags with Jesus, I live in righteousness as a son, as a daughter of God. I don't live in fear. I live in the security of 
God's love for me. And there's freedom and there's hope and there's life change and there's motive and there's joy and because I'm not earning God's love. I'm accepting it. So we have to receive the substitution. Guys, if, I guess you can hang on to your name tag if you want to. So you got to swap. And then you live in that. And the substitution of my place on the cross with Jesus, and the living and the power of that substitution that I am set free, there's no condemnation. That's the gospel. And that process, so to say, or that what God wanted to accomplish started in a unique way when Jesus stepped into that river with John the Baptist. You know that old boy, John the Baptist? We haven't talked about him much this weekend. What? He'd be glad. He'd be glad we didn't. He'd much rather us talk about Jesus. It's all he ever talked about. And this incredible moment that he lived his life for is the incredible moment that God has given his life to you for. Jesus, would you help us in these moments? God, for those who do not know you as Savior, who haven't swapped name tags with you, would you in this moment right now in a very individual way reach out to them? And would you let them experience your kindness and your mercy your forgiveness and the value and the worth that you put on their lives. And God, in this moment, would you let those things be more powerful than the temptation and the draw and the habit of sin? And if God is speaking to you that way right now, kind of in your heart and in your mind, Pull off your name tag. Put it to Jesus. And take his and put it on you. And ask for the forgiveness of your sin. Trade out, swap out. That's what the gospel's all about. And your best words, God knows your heart. Interact with Christ that way. Jesus, would you help us to live in that freedom out of legalism, out of bondage, out of fear, out of our old identity and being defined by your love and your passion and your value for us, God. To see the pain that our sin causes you, the pain that our rebellion causes you 
and to love you so deeply. We don't even want that anymore because we understand the depth of what you've done for us. In these still moments, Jesus, would you work in our lives in these powerful ways?